Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. You are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever known what it means to be hungry? It starts as a sense of appetite, a feeling that you could really do with a bit of something to eat, maybe a snack, and then it grows. And if you've got no way of finding a mouthful or a whole meal, you begin to feel your own fragility. An ache in the stomach, your, own con- your concentration beginning to waver, maybe feeling a little bit light in the head. It's not very comfortable. There are, it seems to me, two kinds of hunger. One that has a name, that has an end, an endpoint, that knows of satisfaction. This is the hunger where you might not have what you want, but you are at least certain about what it is you do want. When you interviewed for a job and you just can't understand why they didn't call you back. When you and your spouse longed for a baby, but it's been harder than you expected. When you awoke in the night wishing for one more conversation with the father you never got to say everything you wanted to say to. These hungers have a name. They aren't necessarily comfortable, and like the physical craving itself can become all-encompassing, totally absorbing. These hungers can be intense, but they do have a name. But then there's another type of hunger, a hunger that is a little more elusive, a little harder to pin down, It's a hunger that lingers deep, disturbingly, in the bottom of your soul, but it doesn't have a name. There's no simple solution to it, no hot meal or job title or box ticket that will satisfy it. The Irish band, U2, famously articulated this second kind of hunger when they sang with longing and bewilderment, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I've searched everywhere and I haven't found it. Rather more vividly, the Rolling Stones, tired of the ordinary and weary of the wild, they sang, I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try. I was going to sing that, but I decided against it. The reason these songs stay in the memory decades after their release is that they identify a point deep in the gut where hunger lingers. The hunger that doesn't have a name. The restless yearning, aching, gnawing, longing hunger that knows when it hasn't found what it's looking for. That knows when it's got no satisfaction. On Sunday mornings for the next five weeks, we'll be camped out in the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. It's a chapter that begins with the feeding of the 5,000, followed by Jesus' profound statements about his identity as the bread of life. The Gospel this morning begins as it says that Jesus looked up and he saw a large crowd coming toward him. And Jesus asked, turned turned to Philip and asked, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? 
you can imagine Philip looking at the other disciples, maybe looking back at Peter, the point guy, to give him some help with the question. Peter holds up his hands. He doesn't know. So Philip fires back. Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. You can just feel the anxiety here. There's only one thing scarier than a huge mob of people, and that's a huge mob of people who are hangry. You'll remember from last week's gospel an important detail about how Jesus views the crowd. While we can assume that Philip sees the crowd and is anxious, Jesus sees the crowd and has compassion on them. Jesus isn't threatened by the people's hunger. Jesus sees it as an opportunity for compassion. But even more so, I sense that while Philip primarily sees people as the, with the first type of hunger, the hunger that can be named, a hunger for food, for rest, for security, the type of hunger that wars are started over, Jesus is different. Jesus will discover in John 6, sees into people's eyes and sees the other kind of hunger, the one that can't be named. He sees the depth of the person, the soul, the physical hunger, yes, but the deeper stirrings of the hunger that remains after the belly is full. The 2004 film, The Chorus, is set in southeast France in 1949 and shows, demonstrates, the difference in these two, ki these two types of hunger. A tyrannical headmaster, Mansour Rachin, presides over a reform school for out-of-control boys set in an old castle known as Fond de Tang, which translates as rock bottom. An out-of-work music teacher, Clement Matthew, arrives, or Matthew, arrives to replace a teacher who's leaving because his arm has been savaged by one of the pupils. The headmaster of the school's regime is simple. He seeks control through fear, and he gives the boys enough food to keep them healthy and strict discipline to keep them compliant. The new teacher, Monsieur Mathieu, faces a high level of hosti hostility and aggravation, and his more lenient policy on, the punishment, on punishment brings him into conflict with the overbearing headmaster. The story really begins, though, when Monsieur Mathieu decides to teach the children to sing. All but one has some kind of a serviceable voice, and most of the, vo the boys play along because choir is less demanding than their other classes. The one boy, Pierre, who keeps aloof, is the wildest of them all. When his mother, out of her depth and unmarried, visits, Mon Monsieur Mathieu lies to her and says Pierre is at the dentist when in fact he's being punished. This wins Pierre's trust and Monsieur Mathieu begins to realize that the wild and suspicious Pierre has an astounding treble voice. Gradually, despite the headmaster's increasing anxiety and envy, the chorus of boys grows in skill and confidence, performing for such audiences as the town countess but it cannot last. Part of the school burns down due to arson, and Monsieur Mathieu is held responsible and fired, and he's forced to leave without any goodbyes. But then you see two men, 
50 years later, leafing through the scrapbook that Monsieur Mathieu wrote up and has left at his time at rock bottom. One of these men looks familiar, and you remember that the film started with a 62-year-old orchestral conductor at the height of his powers performing a Strauss waltz. And you realize this, you realize this at the same, as the same man, and he's called Pierre, and he, has, he was the tearaway delinquent who became the trouble soloist and is now the living embodiment that Monsieur Matthew's work was not in vain, but brought forth a hundredfold. The chorus is about the distinction between the hunger that has a name and the hunger that has no name. The boys know all about the first kind of hunger. They want food, they want some control over their lives, they want exercise, they want to make misery for anyone who tries to pin them down. But the real drama of the story is about the second kind of hunger. The boys are very, very angry, but most of them aren't really sure what they're angry about or who, with whom they're angry with. They're hungry, but food and exercise go little or no distance to meeting their hunger. You see, Monsieur Mathieu doesn't give the boys what they think they want. He doesn't meet the first kind of hunger in any significant way. He takes a huge gamble on reaching them in the hunger that they don't have a name for. And that's where this film becomes more than a heartwarming story and turns into an important analogy for the Christian faith. We often think of Christianity as striving to meet the hunger that has a name, for the starving food, for the thirsty water, for the naked clothing, for the sick medicine all of which is good and right and true and to be sought. But like you too and the Rolling Stones, people want and need more than that. Almost always, what they want is something no one can give them. Christianity isn't simply about satisfying people's hunger. It's a huge gamble on the hunch that what people are really hungry for is something they don't know the name of and wouldn't initially recognize even when they found it. Friends, as we reflect on our own hunger, however, I can't help but wonder if the good news of the gospel opens up for us another angle to think about hunger. I can't help but wonder if there's something even deeper, even more long-lasting, even more insatiable than our hunger. And that's God's hunger for us. I wonder if the good news of the gospel is not merely that we are spiritually hungry beings who become satisfied, I wonder if our faith is more about God's hunger. God's hunger is greater than ours. We struggle to know what we are hungry for. We struggle to name our hunger. But God knows what his hunger is for. God knows the name of his hunger. It's for us. And discovering that the God of the universe is for us is like discovering choral music was for the boys in that reform school. For some of us, like Pierre, it unearths a gift that was longing to get out. For others, it's a realization that together we can make something beautiful, more beautiful than we could ever, ever make alone. That there's a place for all shapes and sizes and voices and energies in a song that takes all our energies, but comes from a force so much bigger than us. Let me ask, are you hungry? Does your hunger have a name? like a yearning for a job or a partner or a home or a new start? 
Or is your hunger deeper and more insatiable than that? Something that even gaining those precious things won't assuage. Are you hungry for the food that satisfies? Brothers and sisters, there is one who has overcome everything to come to you with this food. There is one who left the satisfaction of heaven because he hungered to give life to the world. There is one who is so hungry for relationship that death couldn't quench his desire to be with us. There is a food that never perishes, a table that will satisfy, a mercy that knows no end, a presence whose entire being lives, longs, yes, hungers for your company. Amen.